Locked off. Welcome back to the Pixel Advocate. It's been a while. I'm uh, sorry for the silence. I have had a lot going on between the holidays and parenthood and various other home renovations and oh, uh, list goes on and on. But enough excuses. Um, first of all, I want to make a real uh, quick point here to say goodbye to Neil Peart. Um, if you don't know who that is, he's the drummer for Rush, a band that has been a favorite of mine for decades now. I've seen them live probably about 10 times at least. Um, listened to very familiar with their entire catalog of music. Uh, they're kind of a, a love them or hate them type band, and I understand that. Um, but it's hard to downplay the kind of impact that Neil Peart had on the uh, music industry. And um, he passed away at the age of 67. Um, it was kind of a surprise to everybody because he had a non-publicized illness that he was fighting for the last three and a half years. Um some aggressive form of uh, brain cancer. So anyway, just wanted to throw that in there because I am such a huge fan. And the meek but today, what we're going to talk about is handheld gaming. Now it's um, the handheld thing kind of picked up maybe a little bit later than the, the console stuff did. I've done episodes so far on my experience with Atari 2600, 7800, NES. I'm kind of working my way through that timeline. I haven't really talked a whole lot about handheld stuff, so it kind of overlaps with some of those previous stories. If, uh, if you want to go back and listen to those, those um, episodes which detail, uh, you know, talk in detail about my experience with that stuff. And the um, the handheld stuff's only been kind of briefly mentioned here and there, so we're going to kind of have a little bit of a deeper dive here. Um, So, you know, let's go all the way back to the earliest thing I can remember, okay? The earliest thing I can remember that arguably falls into this category was not a video game per se. It was this, I'll, I'd almost call it a toy. I guess it's a game. It was called, uh, and I had to, uh, I had to do some Googling on this to find it because I couldn't remember what it was called. Uh, and I haven't seen one of these in a long time, but, uh, uh of course, just like just about anything else, you can find anything on the internet. And, um, this little gadget's called, um, Digital Derby. 
It was released in 1978 by a company called Tomy. I guess you'd call it like an electro-mechanical game. It's, um, it's not like a... It doesn't have a screen or like a, like a video game like you traditionally think of a video game. It's got kind of like a... I think it's kind of like a scrolling, like a physically scrolling road that has these little um, depictions of, of cars on it that are coming toward you. And you're this little car at the bottom of the, I'll call it a screen for lack of a better term, the, the play area, let's say. And um, you steer your car back and forth using a physical steering wheel. It's just a little probably maybe one inch cross uh, round dial that you turn back and forth with your thumb. And you're, uh, this, this road is kind of scrolling toward you and you're trying to dodge these cars. And if you quote unquote hit one of these oncoming cars, then you get this kind of crash effect of this blinking red light and your car kind of stops. And then you have to hit this reset button to get the game going again. And you have, um, you got to accelerate through, uh, I think there's two or three gears um, you know, it's so it's, I guess it's kind of clever for the time. And you um, you have a timer, and there's a lap counter, like a mechanical lap timer. So this thing's ticking physical numbers, not like a you know a digital number on a screen like we're so used to now. But um, it is fairly large. It's not something you put in your pocket. This digital derby. Um, it's, it has a kind of a neat looking all black plastic case. You know, I, I mean, I could see people who are into retro collecting would and if they you know remembered having this as a kid they'd imagine these are probably fairly sought after and in these niche circles nowadays i don't really care to have one myself but um you know this is that's my earliest memory of playing a anything that you could reasonably call a portable game so kind of cool for the time but uh definitely primitive and uh things did get a lot better as time passed the next thing I remember playing is um is a little gadget called this is another one I had to I had to Google. Um but it was called Fabulous Fred. It was released in nineteen eighty by a company called I hope I'm saying this correct correctly, uh Mego or Mego M E G O. Um this thing it featured um kind of nine different colored glowing buttons that would generate tones when you press them. Uh, and it uses these this grid of kind of different colored buttons to play 10 basic games. Uh, things like memory, um, where it would, you know, you'd have to memorize pairs and, and um, or, uh, or not pairs, but like it would, uh, it would play like a pattern for you on these lights and then you would have to repeat it. And then it would, the next time it would add one more move to that. And then you'd have to repeat that, you know, and then it keeps adding, uh, you know, a different light to the sequence and you have to keep um, remembering them correctly and, and repeating what, what the system is throwing at you. You know, primitive, but kind of cool. Um, and it had, uh, I remember it had on there like uh, a setting where you could compose very basic music. So then each of the nine buttons would become like a musical tone and you, you can program like quarter notes and eighth notes and pauses and and uh and you can program little songs in there like Camp Town Races and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and really basic sounding and the, you know of course the 
notes were very, um, they were just, uh, you know, pure tones. There was no like harmony or, or multiple voices or anything interesting like that, of course, for, for, uh, 1980. So it was just, uh, very primitive, but, uh, I remember this was actually a gift that was, um, given to my dad, not because my dad was any kind of gamer or anything like that, but just because of it, you know, someone got it as kind of like a joke gift for him because my dad's name is Fred. So this toy was called fabulous Fred. So somebody thought it would be funny to, uh, to give it to him. I don't think he ever really played it, um, more than a few minutes, but of course anything with blinky lights and noises was, was something that we found really cool. And of course, um, we, we, uh, we played with it a lot. I remember playing, spending a lot of time playing with that thing. It did take, um, I think it took, it took big batteries. I think C size, I want to say maybe D I can't remember, but it was always kind of a challenge to, um, to keep that thing powered because the batteries are expensive and my parents weren't excited about always buying new batteries for it. And we'd run them down and probably forget to turn the thing off and you know, that sort of thing, but kind of cool. Um, I actually, a couple of years ago, I found a iPhone app that emulates the fabulous Fred. Um, and it was sure enough, it was like it, the, the screen coming up kind of mimicked what the thing looked like. And, um, it, you know, played all the different game modes, if you want to even call them that, I uh, had all the same buttons, but, um, you know, these types of things just, you know, they seem really cool in retrospect, but maybe they don't translate too well <laughs> into the modern age. And, uh, not only that, but I, a while back I tried that app. Um, and, uh, it looks like the developer hasn't been keeping up with updates and it doesn't work on the, uh, the latest iOS. So I guess my fabulous Fred app is going to join the, uh, real fabulous Fred in the dustbin of history. After that, right around the same time, maybe a few years later, um, something, I guess, kind of similar to the fabulous Fred, but, um, I have a feeling this one is maybe a little more well-known. We got, uh, actually, my brother got it for Christmas one year. It was called the, it must have been the early 80s. It was called the Master Merlin, and it was by Parker Brothers. Now, according to Google, this version was um, actually a follow-up to a toy that was just called Merlin. This one's called the Master Merlin. I, I didn't realize that at the time, but um it looks like this was, quote-unquote, the sequel and it was released in 1982. Uh, and the original Merlin, I guess, was from 1978. Apparently, this was designed by some guy who worked for NASA. So maybe he had some avant-garde ideas about electronic entertainment that he uh, turned into, into a, uh, a product to uh, put on the market. Or maybe he sold it to Parker Brothers, I guess. But um, similar to... Fabulous Fred, this, it's basically just a, a long kind of flat toy that you hold in your hand. And on its face, it has um, 11 buttons that are arranged in kind of a, a grid pattern. And they, and they illuminate and blink and they're numbered. And um, the, the, the toy uses these, these buttons to... Um, to you know, make it possible to play different types of games. Um, I don't remember very many of the games. I remember there was again similar to Fabulous Fred. There was like a memory game where you had to 
repeat back what the game would throw at you. There were, uh, I think there was like a tic-tac-toe and some very basic, you know, I mean, very basic things that you can achieve with, with this type of interface. Um, it looks like, based on what I found on the internet, it looks like it was it would play nine different games. Um, I can't, I can only remember a few of them, but, um, you know, we, I do remember, um, uh, playing that thing quite a bit. It was, it was neat. Um, I could see, um, I could see how that would be, you know, fun to try again for a few minutes. Anyway, again, I'm not too excited about going out and trying to find one of these, but it's fun to, to think about these things and see pictures of them, uh, on the internet after not having seen them for decades and you know it really brings you back but um anyway that's the uh master merlin from the early early 80s um moving on a little bit later this one was something that i didn't really have myself but i remember my uncle had it um and again this is something i i couldn't remember what it was called i had to cast a pretty broad net on google to see if i could find it and of course it doesn't take long but it was called uh, Electronic Talking Play-by-Play Baseball by VTech. It was released in 1987. This is maybe starting to get a little more advanced than the Fabulous Fred and the Merlin. It was a small, you know, little tabletop type game that had a... Um, now it's got kind of like one of those old... Um, is it called LCD display where you got the little... You got the you got the background that's static; it doesn't change. Then you have the little black outline figures that that are that can only light up in fixed positions. You know, it's kind of very crude looking. Um, so it has a screen kind of like that, and there's controls for two players. Um, you're the Eagles or the Buffaloes, and you're you're playing this baseball game. Um, I remember you know screwing around with that a little bit and thinking it was okay, but um, even then it was like. Even, you know, comparing that to the video games we were playing at the time, which would have been Atari uh, 7800 and 2600, I guess. And then not too long after that, the NES. It just seems very, very primitive, you know, even to a, you know, child's, by child standards. And it's just, I, I think that was, the technology wasn't quite there yet to make the games fun. So um didn't really spend a whole lot of time playing that. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years to 1989, and this is when things are starting to turn a corner. Um, I, right around that time, maybe more so 88, 89, I was a huge fan of the arcade game Double Dragon, as many kids my age were. You know, at, at around that time, the... We had the Atari 7800 was our main home console platform, and um, which of course also plays Atari 2600 games. And the uh, I, I hate to put it in these terms, but let's face it, the versions of Double Dragon on both the 2600 and 7800 are kind of like a sad and depressing joke as far as I'm concerned. They're just not good games. Um, the NES version was a fair bit better, uh, but we didn't have an NES at the time. So, um, I was, uh, I was intrigued one day when I happened to be 
leafing through a Toys R Us flyer, and I saw uh, the Tiger Electronics Double Dragon handheld game. Now, anybody who is familiar with the Tiger Electronics games, they made all kinds of different ones. Um, if you're interested, check out um, the Angry Video Game Nerd did a an episode uh, all about Tiger Electronics games where he went through all kinds of them. You can see a lot of them are very similar. I mean, it looks like they almost used the same plastic case for almost all of them and just put different stickers on them and, you know, use different LCD screens. But they all have those screens that, uh, again, have the... Uh, they don't have any color. They just have, like, a fixed background, and they have um, the little figures that can only illuminate in certain locations and so they uh it looks very primitive and choppy and there's no fluid animation anywhere and uh, you know it really takes some imagination to uh to uh see a enjoyable video game experience on a screen that uses this technology but anyway i saw this double dragon um tiger game in the in the uh, Toys R Us flyer and I don't know I guess I guess I really wanted to I really had wanted to have hope that there was a chance this this game would actually be good because I, I looked at the price and I thought well I have I have enough money in the bank to I can afford that and I really like Double Dragon and it'd be really cool so I uh eventually decided hey I'm going to go talk to my mom, and I said, Hey, Mom, I, uh, I'd like a ride out to Toys R Us, please, um, so I can buy this game. I've got the money. You don't got to pay for it. I, uh, I was um, actually speaking that the most of the money I had in those days I, I got from, um, I, I call it a paper route, just because that's a more shorthand way of saying it, I guess, but it wasn't really a paper route. It was more like a... Uh, it wasn't like a newspaper. It was more uh, a bundle of advertisements and flyers. Uh, so the, the type of thing that the vast majority of people don't even look at, they just throw right into the garbage. So these things would get delivered to my house. I can't remember if it was every week or every other week. But they uh, they would get delivered and dropped off on my front porch. Um, the individual flyers for the individual stores would be separate. And I would, the first thing I'd have to do is bring those all in the house and assemble them. Um, into kind of like one booklet that can be distributed to each home on the route. Remember, I had 110 houses, which um, took a while. I mean, you bring those things in, you spend an hour putting them together at least. It would it would vary week to week. Then you got to go out and um, walk up and down these streets um, and, uh, and de- deliver 110 of them. And it wasn't always just papers. Every now and then, companies would um, want us to uh, distribute, you know, either catalogs or um, small samples of products. So this gets quickly gets cumbersome because if you have 110 houses on the route, and you've got these great big catalogs that weigh like a pound each, <laughs> then it's uh, it's difficult because um, you can try like, try to cart, but then the 
be like in the winter, the train would be all bumpy. And um, ultimately what I always ended up doing was just carrying what I could like in my arms and just walking, walking down the street, delivering those, walking back home, getting another arm load that just seemed quicker. Um, and, and products were very embarrassing at times. I remember I had to, at one point I had to deliver um, applesauce and cranberry juice. Um, I guess those aren't embarrassing, but uh, one time I had to deliver like, uh, let's say female hygiene products, uh, if you take my meaning. So yeah, maxi pads. Um, yeah, my friends got a good laugh out of that. So, but it was such a joke that, um, you know, the pay I would get for this. I remember my first, my first paycheck was, uh, in the middle of a pay cycle. So it was only for, for one week's worth of work. Normally like we got paid every other week and the, the paycheck was $3 and 85 cents. I still remember that $3 and 85 cents for assembling the papers um, sp- you know, spending an hour doing that, going out probably one or two hours, walking up and down the neighborhood in the freezing cold of winter to deliver these things that knowing that nobody's reading them for $3 and 85 cents. Like that's just, I mean, I'm not some old guy from, from the forties talking here. I, I'm, t- I'm a, this is a kid in the, in the late eighties doing this, which wasn't that long ago. And three dollars and eighty-five cents. It just seems like slave labor. Like, even my parents agreed. Got to the point where I would just sometimes I just wouldn't even deliver all the papers. I just go, eh, I'm going to skip this block, but no one would notice because you know no one read this stuff anyway. And then the samples. I mean, the tampons or not tampons, <laughs> maxi pads. Remember, I got so fed up with those things, I just put them in a bag and chucked them in a field. I mean, I'm not really proud of that, but anyways. That's how I got my money. Um, And needless to say, I was fired from that job. I was relieved of my duties, let's say. So I wanted to get the Double Dragon uh, handheld game. So uh, my uh, uh, mom agreed that she would take me after school. I remember remember standing outside um, in the schoolyard at recess after I decided that I was going to... uh, get this game and um i was we were waiting to go inside and i was my classmate dennis um he was also a kind of a fellow video game enthusiast i I still remember this conversation like it was yesterday i remember telling him yeah so uh i had the flyer in my pocket i pulled it out i said see this double dragon portable double dragon i'm gonna after school today uh i'm gonna be going to pick this little uh, bad boy up and I'm going to be the envy of everybody because I have double dragon. And um Dennis I remember he hadn't heard of this game at that time. This was like me showing him this was the first he'd ever heard of it. And I still remember like on the spot there. I mean, we're talking like I don't know, we're what 11 12 years old maybe. And uh his uh 11, 12-year-old skeptical mind was already kicking into high gear. He was immediately, outwardly skeptical um, that this little game could possibly be any good. I think I can still recall the conversation. Uh, I said something along the lines of, 
how do you know it's going to be no good if you haven't even seen it? I'm like, I was kind of almost like defensive, like how he's so sure that this is, is going to be no good. And he said something like, I, I just don't see how they would be able to fit Double Dragon, such a cool game like Double Dragon, into that little game. And um, it turns out Dennis's skepticism was warranted. Uh, this was, after all, the, the pre-Game Boy age. Um, and so, I mean, how could there possibly be a good and fun version of Double Dragon packed into such a small handheld toy? Um, but, you know, I thought, I considered that maybe Dennis was just a pessimist, or maybe he was just jealous that I was going to be getting this game, and he wasn't. But, as it turns out, I should have listened to Dennis. <laughs> Anybody who's played any of these Tiger Electronics handhelds, I'm not sure I've ever really heard of anybody saying they thought they were great. I mean, maybe they look back at them and it's kind of a, a nostalgic curiosity, but, I mean, in terms of actually being fun games, eh. I don't, you know, I just don't think they, very many people look at them that way, but maybe I'm wrong. I remember uh, after picking the game up, playing it um, for the first time and basically instantly realizing that the dream of a fun and pocket-sized version of Double Dragon was just not to be. Um, but since I did spend my own money on it and I did have it, I did try to like it. I remember carrying it around and playing it on the boss. and um, It was just, you know, very simplistic. Um, if you're not familiar with it, check it out on... Um, Actually, I think there's, aside from the Angry Video Game Nerd episode, which is about all the games, this specific one, there's probably, I think I remember finding a YouTube video on it. Um, and I think there might even be someone who programmed an emulator that, that plays these games. Um, and you can see just how primitive and simplistic it is. And the controls were just really basic and clunky. And I don't know, it just wasn't, it was just dull. It wasn't very much fun. Which brings us to July of 1989 when a little device called the Nintendo Game Boy was introduced. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't even know what the Game Boy was. I'd never, uh, never even heard of it until um, that Christmas season. So I guess it would be December 1989. Um, actually, well, to be more accurate. Uh, January 1990, when I returned to school following the Christmas break, and um, my friend, um, my friend and classmate that uh, kind of shared a desk with me, um, he came. He came in after the holiday, and um, you know, we're talking about what we uh, got for Christmas. And actually, if you listen to the NES episode that I, I did a while back. And I told a story about, you know, the friend coming to school and uh, telling me about his NES that he got for Christmas. Well, this is the same friend. Um, and he told me that he got a, well, him and his brother both got their own Game Boys. And they also got 
the Power Glove for their NES. Um, and like I said, I didn't. This was the first I'd ever heard of the Game Boy. I'd no, I didn't even, I'd, you know, pre-internet era, didn't really have a lot of money to be buying magazines or anything like that. So I guess I just wasn't aware, didn't notice. Uh, and my, not to mention my negative kind of whole hum experience with um, with handheld games up to that point. I guess, you know, all those factors together, I just wasn't extremely excited or curious about the Game Boy. I figure, well, how good could it be, right? It's probably just more of the same of these primitive, junky games. I was actually more, way more interested in the Power Glove. Um, so, um, shortly after that, I went over to his house so that uh, I could try it out. And actually, surprisingly, as I, as I talked about in the NES episode, the Power Glove pretty much sucked. I mean, I'm not going to rehash that story, but I, you know, wasn't really didn't really turn out to live up to the promise or whatever. And um the Game Boy actually ended up being the main attraction when I went over to his house. I was I was extremely impressed, surprised at how good it was. Um he was very lucky to have most of the launch titles. Well, I don't know if it would be most of them, but he had a a decent set to start. He had Super Mario Land, of course, Tetris cuz it that's the packing game. He had tennis, he had Alleyway, which is kind of like Arkanoid-style game. Uh, he had Baseball. Uh, and the fact that his brother also had a Game Boy meant that I was able to kind of get a look at how the link cable works when, you know, playing Tetris. And I think they might have had, I recall, I think they might have had two copies of the baseball game so they could play that as well. And when I saw that, I'm like, wow, this is... This is cutting-edge stuff. I mean, despite the fact that the screen was kind of basic and small and black and white, it didn't didn't seem to matter because the games were legit fun games. They were good, almost like downscaled, slightly versions of NES games in your pocket. It was just, wow, now I'm interested. Now I'm on board with this portable gaming thing. So, uh, pretty much overnight, I went from being relatively uninterested in Game Boy to wanting one really badly. Uh, so the way I remember this going, I, I I couldn't, I wasn't about to wait for my birthday or the following Christmas to, you know, wait for my hope that my parents would buy me one. So dip into some more of that paper route money, um, wanted to buy one for myself, but I probably didn't have very much money left um because i was also at this time spending a lot of money at arcades and things like that so um i probably never really at any given time carried much of a bank balance especially since you know making three dollars and 85 cents a week you know it's kind of hard to accumulate a nest egg uh but i caught i remember catching wind of a friend at school who was selling his game boy um and uh, a small game collection. Um, so this seemed like a good opportunity to, you know, get, you know, into the Game Boy and a few games and save a little bit of money in the process. Um, I don't know how I remember this, but I remember the asking price. Um, he wanted, uh, 
this kid who actually ended up being one of my really close uh, close friends later on in life. I wasn't not so much at this time, but uh, he ended up being the uh, bass player in uh, a band I played in high school, and we hung out a lot later on. Anyway, he was asking uh, eighty bucks, which I happily agreed to because um, it came with the, the Game Boy. Tetris, he had Super Mario Land, and maybe maybe one other game, but that's what I remember. Um, so it would, all in all, if I think the retail value of everything I got from him was probably maybe almost twice that at the time. So I, it seemed like a good deal. Um, so uh, and he was he lived pretty close, so I hopped on my bike and rode over there and gave him the eighty bucks and excitedly pedaled home to uh, play my new Game Boy. I was a bit disappointed that the um, the screen uh, on this Game Boy, well, not the screen itself, but the the lens or the, the transparent lens that uh, you look through to see the screen um, was, you know, absolutely covered in, in these little micro scratches, almost like he stuffed this thing in his pocket too many times or something like that. But I don't know. It was I was a little disappointed by that, but I guess you get what you pay for, right? And uh, it did work fine otherwise. So once you're playing, you don't really notice the scratches. So that the, the Game Boy became not not only when we we were traveling or or or, or you know on the go, it, it was it was such a quality little little system that I you know played it a lot just sitting around at home. It kind of supplemented the uh, the NES, um, and uh, you know both got heavy play and um, going into. 1990 and 91, you know, as time as time went on, uh, more and more and more people um, started to show up at school with Game Boys, and it it kind of became somewhat of a phenomenon. Uh, I remember at recess uh, at school, there there'd be you know just cluster of, clusters of us um, sitting around, you know, playing playing our Game Boys. Um, you know, where possible, you know, linking up with the cable, uh, playing games on the school bus, trading games, uh, giving, you know, exchanging tips, you know, all the same kind of little mini economy that you see with the, with the consoles was, was happening with the Game Boy as well. And it was, uh, it was really, really heated up there for a while. It was, uh, it was a big thing. Another, uh, another time, uh, that I got, or situation where I used the Game Boy a lot was, and around that time, I was um, I, I was enrolled in this program. It was um, I don't know. What you'd call, I guess you'd call it kind of like a like a gifted class, um, where just a small group of us would um, one day a week we would uh, rather than go to the our usual classes at, at school, we would we would get bussed out to this other school in the county and uh take some kind of special courses where they would try and focus on like creativity and more advanced problem solving and this sort of thing um in retrospect this almost seems kind of strange um but i i i got enrolled in that somehow i think i scored well on some aptitude tests or something like that i don't know there was only three or four of us that, w- that would go to this and so we'd get bust out to the county in the in the the um the bus ride was about 45 minutes one way. 
And there'd just be, you know, three or four of us in the back of this great big school bus. The, the rest of the bus is empty and we're getting carried out there. And so we'd, uh, all of us had Game Boys. So we'd sit at the back of this bus and we had once a week, we had 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back to sit there and, and uh, and play our portable games. Um, that was a lot of fun. And, um, of course, Tetris was a really common game to be playing at this time because everybody had it as it was the pack-in game. And uh, it presented a reliable opportunity to kind of have two-player matches via the uh, the link cable. And unfortunately, it wasn't always easy to find multiple copies of the same cartridge for, uh, for two-player games on all the other games that supported that feature. I mean, every now and then we'd luck out, but um, it was it was tough to, uh, to really enjoy the two-player capabilities because, you know, we uh, just... You know, being kids, we didn't, we couldn't just go to the store and pick up a copy of a game. We had to rely on what we were getting for for gifts and things like that. So it wasn't always easy to have the two player matches, but it was always a treat when we were able to do so. Um, you know, on the topic of Tetris, you know, I should point out that I think of all the versions of Tetris that have come out over the years and all the different ways you can play that game, um, the Game Boy two player experience. That's hands down uh, my favorite Tetris experience ever. Um, it's just the, the game one player is really solid in itself, but it, it's um, it's just perfect for the format. You know, the small screen doesn't become problematic for a game like that. Um, you don't really need a bunch of colors or or super high horsepower uh, to do that game well. The music sounds good. It's just tailor made for that that format, and then you throw in the two player version, and now you've you've got competition, and you you got that little thing where you can uh, where like you get a Tetris, and it dumps the four lines on your opponent, so, um, and you know it just this nice fun kind of um, just intense kind of smack talking head to head competition, and um, you know to each have your own screen, and you're able to do things, and the other guy can't see it. Um, that sort of thing. It was just really, really high novelty for that. And um, I, I really would love to uh, to play that again. That was, uh, like I said, just the best, my favorite, hands down, um, Tetris experience that I've ever had. Um, and that's saying something because that game is, you can play that game in so many different ways anymore. But nothing tops the two players on the Game Boy. Um, what are some other games I played on Game Boy? Um not that many, I guess. I mean, when you look at the size of this, this platform's library, um, I didn't. I played only a small fraction of them. Uh, you know, you kind of take it for granted nowadays how easy it is to, to experience a whole library with like emulation and ROMs and stuff like that. But it just that wasn't possible back then. You had to have the physical cartridge. Of course, I had Super Mario Land. Like I said, I got that one um, in the deal uh, in that eighty dollar deal that uh with my uh with my friend there when i bought it um and um that's uh super mario land it's um it's a pretty short game and it's frankly not very difficult it didn't take me very long at all to uh beat it um but it is a very very well well done game it's fun which is the important thing it's uh it's a pretty good fit for the platform they they did a good job of kind of downsizing the the concept of super mario onto the game boy and uh really i i can still play this game now i really i really enjoy it 
Um, it's it's one of my favorite Mario games of all time. Um, it's just something about it. I guess uh, I like the music. It's a kind of a different theme with from the uh, from the NES uh, games. It has some uh, kind of like Egyptian themes, I guess. <laughs> and you have uh, you know different types of enemies and all that. But it's a it's a well done game, and um, I played through it recently uh, on uh, on original hardware and. Was it was no problem whatsoever to uh, to beat it. It's just, like I said, it's not a difficult game, but it is fun. Another one um spent a lot of time playing was Motocross Maniacs. This one is, uh, it's, I guess, sort of similar to Excite Bike, although not really, because Excite Bike allows you to, um, not only do you move left to right, but you move kind of up and down on the screen, like to different lanes to get around things. This here is all just flat 2D, um, but you're, you're kind of doing these kind of un- very, very unrealistic stunt courses where you're, jumping ramps and going through loop-de-loops and and things like that and um and you you collect little power-ups and you have a um i can't remember if they called it like a turbo or a nitro button where you you push it and you get this quick burst of speed um and you only have so many uh so many times that you can use that before you collect more or whatever um and of course the the point is to get through these courses and uh in a certain amount of time to qualify and and then but the the cool thing about this game was that it also had a uh, a two player um mode that you could you play over the link cable and this is happens to be one of the games that I other than Tetris that I spent a lot of time playing in two player mode because uh, my cousin had it my buddies had it and uh it was a lot of fun like you could see um you see kind of like a ghosted version of your opponent uh on the course and you're kind of racing him so I just found that fascinating how we would each have our own screen that was only monitoring, you know, where we were in the course, but then you could find your your opponent and uh, see exactly what they're doing, all the flips they're making and the cra- where they're crashing and all that. Um, and, you know, that's kind of quaint to think about nowadays, but back then I just found that was to be really cool because any multiplayer game back then, you play on a home console, you're sharing the same screen and you can you can kind of see see what the what your opponent's doing um and even in later consoles like playstation air and everything like that you have split screen so you can you can kind of cheat but just by looking at your opponent's uh part of the screen to see what they're doing here you, everyone has their own screen which kind of you know provides a different element of you know uh, of uh like there's a extra novelty to that um so that was a fun one um there was a uh, getting back to double dragon um it's a pretty cool version of that game on the Game Boy. Um, it's uh, it holds up okay. It's it's I guess kind of similar to the NES version, not exactly the same. Um, it's but it's definitely a, a playable game. Um, it's definitely uh, one of my favorite games that I remember playing on the Game Boy. Um, it, it looked good. It sounded good. Had the the old iconic theme song for from the arcade game, um, and uh, most importantly, it absolutely put to shame the uh tiger electronics version (laughs) 
that I talked about earlier. Um, Solar Striker, that was kind of like a vertically scrolling shoot 'em up. You know, nothing special, kind of basic. But a good, a good um, early Game Boy game that was, uh, you know, just a good quality game for the time and, and, and for the platform. Uh, there's a pretty good version of Dr. Mario on the, on the, uh, on the Game Boy. Um, I didn't really get into Dr. Mario until later, but, uh, it's, I do remember playing it and it's a very, very playable version. Of course, it does kind of help, I guess, to have, uh, the colors on the NES version or, uh, on the arcade. Um, it's a little easier on the eyes when you have colors, but they, they use clever ways of, of, uh, different combinations of the, of the grayscale to give you a good enough idea of what colors are what. And the game definitely works and it, um, it plays quite well. There was a Ninja Turtles game on there called The Fall of the Foot Clan. I remember playing that. Um, pretty good. It's not the type of game that really holds up very well for me today, but uh, you know it looks pretty good. You could have you could play as of play as uh, all the different turtles and their weapons, and just kind of a very basic kind of side-scrolling uh, eat 'em up platform type game. No, not too bad. It was I really loved it at the time. Um, but like I said, it's not. That type of gameplay isn't really something that really interests me much anymore, but um, it, it, was, it was a good one back then. Uh, along those same lines, another one I had was uh, The Amazing Spider-Man. I'm not really a Spider-Man fan or a comic book type guy or whatever. I must have got this game as a gift or something because I certainly couldn't see myself kind of picking it myself. But uh, I played it at the time. It was okay. Uh, Again, kind of a side-scroller, nothing special. Not something that I would really, you know, enjoy nowadays, but it was okay. Um, Nemesis is kind of like a Gradius-type game. Um, And it was also, there was also a version on the NES uh, by Konami. It's kind of a side-scrolling shooter with that, that, you know, neat power-up system that you see in Gradius. Um, Not a huge fan of Gradius. Uh, to be honest. Um, and in fact, uh, I think I talked about that in, in one of my lists episode as a game that's, you know, very popular, but I don't care for it that much. But um, this particular version of Nemesis on the Game Boy, it's actually, you'd think it would be difficult to pull off a game like, like this on the Game Boy, but they somehow did it. It's a, it's a pretty decent version. Um, I played it not that long ago, and it's uh, it holds up surprisingly well. It's not Amazing, but it's uh, pretty good. games I played, but the system was, uh, you know, just consistent quality. I found that, you know, true to Nintendo's legacy, they, um, I may not agree with everything they did or like everything they did, but they certainly did maintain high level, high standards of quality. And they did a great job of, of enlisting kind of third party develop development houses to put out quality software for their platforms. And, uh, the Game Boy is really no exception. Um, of course the, uh, you know, as far as the Game Boy goes, it's limitations. I mean, 
the lack of a, even back then, the lack of a backlight was always kind of a complaint about the Game Boy because it, you, you always had to kind of be in the light, outdoors or, or in a car. If you're in a car, you had to kind of lean toward the window to use the, the natural light or you needed a, a light over your shoulder if you're sitting on the couch or something so you could see the screen, which is, uh, you know, kind of crazy to think about nowadays when everything has got big, bright sharp displays but uh that he actually had a, a screen that wasn't even self-lit but um nonetheless that's what it what it uh what it was like and of course that you know the nice thing about that was it it meant you got pretty good battery life but uh trade-off is you uh had to bring your own light type type deal so eventually uh to get around that problem i uh i got a an add-on accessory for my game boy uh, I had to search the internet uh, again to find this, uh, but I eventually found it. It was called a, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but Newbie Game Light, N-U-B-Y. I guess that's the name of the company that made it. It was a third-party peripheral. And um, it was like this thing that kind of snapped on to the, uh, the top of the Game Boy. And um, it would kind of shine a light across the screen it was it wasn't a very even light but it was enough that you could see the screen it worked i mean i remember using it a lot and it took um four double a batteries so you had to have the four batteries four double a batteries for the game boy itself and i had to carry an extra four double a batteries to put in this light um and it worked i you know so i guess i can't really complain but if i did have a complaint about this thing it's that it was um uh it made the Game Boy kind of top heavy because <laughs> you have the, the battery compartment for the light is hanging off the top of your Game Boy now. So if you're, say, lying down in bed in, in a dark bedroom trying to play and you're holding the, the Game Boy above your face, then it kind of disrupted the kind of weight balance of how the Game Boy feels in your hand. It was kind of top heavy and almost made it want to kind of tilt towards your face. It's some nitpicking, but uh, I do remember thinking that. Um, but it did work, so... It was definitely a worthwhile purchase uh, when I got it. Um, so, you know, between the cartridges and the batteries and the this light and, you know, the link cable and, and things like this, eventually it got to be just too much to be carrying around. Uh, so I figured, okay, I need some kind of case. Now, of course, there, there were commercially available cases on the market but they were expensive and like i don't know i just i guess it never occurred to me to to uh ask my my parents for a game boy case maybe i didn't maybe i didn't want to waste a birthday gift on a case <laughs> i'd rather get cartridges or uh, um you know other cool stuff rather than a case so what i did was i took matters into my own hands um i uh in a, a closet in my parents' house, up in the back, there was this, I saw this wooden box. It was like a little wooden case. Um, so I took it down and opened it up, and there was, inside there was a um, a microscope. So it looked almost like some kind of like home learning kit. Like a, there was a microscope in there, uh, some glass slides that had um, different... Uh, uh, samples of things kind of, um, uh, I don't know, under some kind of lacquer or something on there so that you could put them 
on the microscope and look at them in different magnifications. Then there were some blank slides so you could put your own stuff on there and look at it. Uh, had the different eye pieces and I don't know, just the typical kind of school grade lap uh, microscope that you would uh, see in like a like a school science class or something. And I, honestly, I'm not even sure where this came from. I, I think it might have belonged to my mom or, or it certainly wasn't ours. Like uh, it didn't belong to any of us kids. Um, but it, no one was using it. It was just collecting dust up there. And so I took this thing down. I, I just ditched all of the microscope stuff and I took this wooden box and thought, Hmm, this might make a pretty decent Game Boy case. But the problem was it was too tall. Like the, the, the box was, um, it was too bulky. It was too tall. Um, so <laughs> what I did was, uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of a surprise. I was able to get away with this, but I, I took out all of the, like inside it had all these little forms and, and shapes that would accommodate the, um, I think it might've just been like styrofoam that would accommodate the, like it's kind of like a cutout of the, the microscope so that you open the case and you know, it kind of slots into the styrofoam to keep it from moving around. So I, I ripped out all that stuff. So now I've just got like an empty shell of a box. But like I said, it's it's too um, it's too big in the in the height direction. It's too bulky. So what I did was I disassembled this box. It was a uh, it was made of wood, uh, and it was kind of glued together, and um, it had um, I remember what those kind of like a dovetail joints at the corners type thing, and I carefully finessed these apart and and broke it into its individual parts. And I took all of the all of the parts that made up the side of the box, which you know was the part that determined the um, the height of the box. And I snuck out to the garage and fired up my dad's table saw and cut them down to uh, a smaller width. And then I reassembled the box. So I, I reassembled it and took the face um, of, the, of the box and glued it on top of the, the newly filed down or um, cut down surface. So now, uh, you know, I think I hot glued it or uh, wood glued it. I can't remember. Maybe a few finishing nails. And so now... Um, with this, once I reassembled it, I've got, it's basically the same thing as it was before, but now it's trimmed down to a much lower profile and it's, uh, it's still an empty box at this point. And so I took some of the scraps that I, uh, of wood that resulted from me cutting down the, uh, the sides of the box. And I, um, I cut them into little pieces and, uh, so that there was, when you opened the case, there were little forms inside that would be the exact size of the Game Boy. Like, so for example, I, uh, I use these little scraps to glue in a little rectangle in the upper left corner that would, uh, perfectly fit the Game Boy itself. I even had to cut out a little notch in one piece for the, uh, for the power switch. And, but it would just drop right in there and fit perfectly snugly. Um, so that when I closed the case up, the Game Boy wouldn't, wouldn't be sliding around. And I did a similar thing for made little, uh, little compartments for the cartridges and, and the cable and uh, a few other things. So it turned out great. I'm in retrospect, pretty impressed with myself. Um, and it was certainly a one of a kind. No one else had a, a homemade wooden Game Boy case. So another thing I did was after I kind of constructed it and did the layout on the inside and everything, I took a, uh, my brother had this like wood burning set. Um, you know, in the 80s, you, kids could have stuff like this. Um, it would never fly now, but it was 
you uh, you plug it in, and it's almost like a soldering iron, and it heats up, and you can put different tips on the end of it, and you can use it to kind of burn wood. Um, you know, so you can do artwork, say, on like a, on a piece of wood by uh, doing burn marks and using different shapes of tips and stuff like that. Almost like, uh, you know, picture like a marker, but instead of a ink, it's like you're it's a heated tip that's burning the wood, so you can uh, kind of do artwork. So I, I fired that thing up and, uh, you know, burned uh, my initials on the front and put Game Boy or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty pretty badass. Uh, I, uh, on my first trip, uh, on that 45-minute round-trip school thing I was telling you about with the uh, the Game Boy Club at the back at the back of the bus, show up um, one day, pull that case out. Everyone's like, wow, where'd you get that? And I'm like, well, I made it myself. You can too. You just gotta find a uh, check your closet to see if you have any unused microscopes. You know, get into ninety one, April ninety one. Um, there was the magazine Electronic Gaming Monthly. Uh, was which is I think I mentioned before was a magazine that I spent a lot of time leafing through. I didn't always buy it. I bought it when I could, but I'd always be going to the store to kind of leaf through it. And um, April 1991, issue number 21 of Electronic Gaming Monthly had something in there that completely changed my um, handheld gaming course. There was a a feature in that issue uh, on the Atari Lynx, and um, it really, like, at the time, I was aware of the links. I mean, I knew for most of the time that I had the Game Boy, I knew, I knew of the links. I knew that it was a color handheld. But I just figured, well, I'm having enough fun with the Game Boy. Um, I don't, you know, the links is probably way too expensive. Uh, I'm, I'll probably never have one. I, I don't know, I just didn't really think much of it. I didn't know anyone who had one, so it's not like I was... Uh, seeing it in action and, and, you know, getting jealous or, you know, really wanting one. So, um, but for some reason, when I saw this April, 1991 electronic gaming monthly, they had this, uh, big feature on the links in there. And, um, you know, in retrospect, I, um, I'm not sure it was really written by the editors of electronic gaming monthly. I, uh, I actually have a copy of this magazine uh, it's in storage. I don't feel like digging it out, but um, so I've got it in front of me in digital form. I've got it on a tablet here. Um, I was able to find it on the net, and um, you know, looking at this link section now, um, I think what caught my interest uh, at the time was um, I think this was right around the time where Atari was releasing the Lynx Model Two, or at least they'd announced it. And so that was like a like a hardware revision. It was the same system, but it was just smaller, a little more sleek. And um, so the there was there was this big push where Atari was doing some pricing cuts to try to compete better with the Game Boy. So they're knocking the price down uh, for the original Lynx model, the bigger one, uh, down to ninety nine dollars. Um, of course, that meant that you'd get the system only, like you wouldn't get California games with it. Um, like you would uh, prior to that. Um, it was just the console, but um, that price point started to look, wow, that's not that much money. 
And then I uh, saw this, um, I started leafing through this, this EGM issue and uh, it just, I read the whole thing front to back and I just started to get really intrigued um, because they, uh, it really like this, this feature really puffs up the links and really pushes it. And what, what I started to say a minute ago is I, <laughs> I didn't notice this at the time, but I, I read this now and this really doesn't read like a, something that EGM did themselves. I think this was probably something that Atari paid to have put in this magazine, almost like a, um, Hey, EGM, uh, we'll pay you, uh, put this, uh, links feature in your, in your magazine. Um, it's basically a, just a great big commercial for the links. Um, it's not critical of anything. All it does is puff it up. Um, and I'm not sure that's very ethical. I should say somewhere in here, this is an advertisement, but it doesn't, but it clearly is. Anyways, uh, it worked on me because I, I read this and, um, I remember reading through this, this feature, like probably I read it front to back, probably 20 times. Um, I just, then every time I read it, I got more and more excited. Oh, I just really, cause I'd never actually held a links in my hand before. I'd never actually seen one. I didn't know anyone who had one. So um, color handheld. Wow. Like all these fancy, um, uh, hardware capabilities of this thing. And so this, uh, this feature has got like, I'm just leafing through it here. It's got, you know, screenshots of all kinds of games, you know, um, with a little write up for each one shows the box art. Um, and again, it's all, it's all just kind of, uh, like a puff piece. There's no criticism of any of the games, no objective critique. It's all puff, puff, puff. Um, you know, focus does a little bit more of a feature on some games like Ninja Gaiden here, where it talks about, you know, some strategy and some of the moves you can do and, a tournament cyberball and uh, yeah wow this is bringing me back looking at this it's several pages long and um so i got it in my head like i gotta have one of these so um i uh talked to my mom and uh she said what do you want for your birthday in that year uh in 1991 which would have been may in 1991 i said i would like an atari lynx um, so, uh, they agreed, um, that that would be my birthday gift that year. So, um, I, I, you know, I think they, I, I did the sales pitch like, well, this is much reduced price. This is a great deal. We should pick one up now, you know, this sort of thing. So on my birthday, we went out, um, to dinner as a family. We, uh, headed, then after that, we, Headed over to Toys R Us, where I very excitedly picked up my Atari Lynx. Again, it was the uh, Lynx 1 model, the original one, which is the, the really big version. <laughs> um, and as I said, this particular deal came with no packing game. But um, I did end up that day getting uh, picking up a copy of Blue Lightning as well. I can't remember exactly how I decided on blue lightning. It was either, it might've been a, a, like a promotional deal at the time where you, if you, you pick up the, this version of the links, then 
either get a discount on, uh, there's a small set of cartridges you could pick to get a discount on price or something like that. And maybe that's why I picked it. Or maybe I just, I definitely was a fan of Afterburner, uh, the arcade game at the time. So maybe it's likeness to Afterburner was, was a selling point for me. I don't know. But regardless, I ended up picking up Blue Lightning. That was the only game I got on the first day. And, um, of course, I, I wasn't about to wait all the way until I got home to try out the Lynx, so I was sure to take along with me a set of uh, six AA batteries so that uh, I could fire the thing up in the car on the drive home. Now, it's important to to point out that this is obviously the pre-internet, pre-YouTube era. And uh, like I mentioned, I had no friends who had an Atari Lynx. I didn't know anybody who had one. So I actually, I really had no real way of knowing what to expect in terms of the system's look and feel and its capabilities and how Blue Lightning would play. I mean, the only thing I had to go on up to this point was uh, the still images that I'd seen in that EGM magazine. That was really it. Um, but I got to say, I do. I distinctly remember sitting in the backseat of that car, you know, it's dark out, got the glow of the screen on my face, it's backlit, it's color. The first impression upon uh, uh, playing the Lynx and playing Blue Lightning was, wow, this is technically impressive. I mean, it was pretty jaw-dropping, to be honest. I remember being really impressed. Um, and I do think that um, Blue Lightning, it did, t- that, you know, in retrospect, turned out to be a, a really good choice for my uh, for my first game. Because um, it's worth pointing out that I was already a Genesis owner at this point, so it's you know, I was, it's not like I was, um, you know, a stranger to the latest and greatest of what video games had to offer. I mean, I, I had a Genesis. I was, I'd seen some for the time, pretty impressive games. And I was still very impressed with the, uh, the graphics and sound of the links and not, not just with the caveat, like this is impressive for a handheld. It was just impressive in its own right. It looked really, looked and sounded really good. One of the things that I really was intrigued about and drawn to on the links was um the hardware scaling capability that it had um you know if you don't i'm not a hardware guy so i don't know all the nitty-gritty technical details but um basically what that is is it's a it's a feature built into the hardware that that gives the the system the capability to um kind of zoom in and out on graphics in a smooth way, um, which really has like can be used to great effect on kind of pseudo uh, pseudo 3D games uh, like Blue Lightning, where you're kind of f- flying or driving kind of into the screen and you got stuff coming toward you. Um, so all those objects kind of smoothly scale in and scale out, and it's a really neat kind of pseudo 3D effect. Um, and you know, even the Genesis, uh, did not have this capability. So, you know, that, that just goes to show, you know, some of the cutting edge features that the links actually did have. Um, it, cause if you notice, if you play, um, some games on the Genesis, like racing games or a game like, um, space Harrier or, or something like that, you'll notice that. All the stuff that's flying at you, I mean, they they do a pretty good job of it. I mean, it it, it plays okay, but 
you can tell what that how the, the way they achieve that effect is they they draw multiple frames so to speak of of the sprite so they'll uh they have to the graphics have to be okay this is this is an object at this distance and then we'll make one a little bit bigger then a little bit bigger and so it's kind of choppy if you look closely you can see the objects come towards you and they get they get they jump up uh the larger sizes in discrete steps whereas with the links with the scaling capability it's just a smooth zoom in zoom out and it's a really neat effect and I've, i always you know back then i always thought that was really cool and of course the, the super nintendo had that capability as well which is one of the and they used it to, to great effect on on lots of games um as a way of kind of uh you know, holding one over on Sega that couldn't do that. So, um, yeah, so that, that's why I think Blue Lightning was a really good first choice because it makes great use of, of those graphical effects and it looks and sounds really good. Um, the next game I bought was, uh, was Clax. Now, I, I remember my, my mindset at the time when I, when I picked up this game. This is another game I, you know, I went out and bought with my own money. And I remember how much entertainment value I got out of playing Tetris on the Game Boy. So I remember thinking, um, I don't want to, since I don't have any way of trying these games out before I buy them, I want to kind of go with a sure sure bet. So um, I got a lot of lot of playtime out of Tetris on Game Boy, so Clax is kind of a Tetris-like game, so maybe I'll pick up Clax for Lynx. That was my, that was my thinking anyway, and it, it actually turned out to not disappoint. Um, to this day, uh, the Lynx port of Clax is my absolute favorite version. I actually even like it better than the arcade game because, um, well, first of all, the, it it does a very good job of of um, of bringing the arcade game down to a small screen. Like the the uh, the graphics look great. Um, the way the tiles kind of tumble toward you makes great use of the scaling effects. The, the sound effects are spot on, like the, the voices and, and the, uh, the little quirky sound effects of the tiles tumbling down the track and the, um, you know, the audience and the applause and all those effects are intact and they just sound fabulous on the links. Uh, and even versions that, um, that I played much, much later, um, like for example, on, on the Game Boy Advance or, or, uh, other consoles, later consoles and everything, they just don't compare. I mean, they're all decent. It's hard to play a bad version of Clax, but if you want all those little touches that 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 come from the arcade game, uh, the Lynx is just is just tops for me. You did have to hold the Lynx vertically to play it, which was a bit strange. Um, but you know you, you spend a little bit of time playing that, and you you quickly get used to it, and it does make a lot of sense because you know the the the, sh- the shape of the Lynx screen. You turn it on its side to more make better use of the screen real estate to more closely mimic the uh, the arcade game. And um, like I said, it's very similar to the arcade. And, and the only reason I like it better than the arcade is just because the difficulty is maybe a little bit more forgiving. The arcade game is um, it's uh, it's just the first few screens are easy, but then it just it hits a brick wall or it just gets like just insanely difficult so um just for i think the the links version maybe smoothed out the difficulty curve a little bit which made it a little more playable um but yeah out, outstanding port um easily hands down my favorite game that i ever played on the links 
Um, so <laughs> yeah, it didn't take long before, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, um, after getting the links that I, I turned around and sold my Game Boy. Cause I think what I wanted to do was, uh, sell the Game Boy, take the money and use it to buy links games. Um, I can't remember exactly if that's what I did, but I imagine that's probably what I did. So now I've got that wooden case that I built for the Game Boy and I need a case for the links. Um, but the, the, in, the interior of this case, like I said, was kind of configured specifically to accommodate a Game Boy. So what I did was all those little, all those little, um, forms inside that I used to, to hold the cartridges in the, in the Game Boy, I, I popped those off. They're attached with glue. I just popped them off and repositioned them and rearranged them so that the links would fit in here. Now I had the, um, I had the, the model one links, which is if you've seen, the model one and model two side by side, you can see it's considerably bigger. Uh, and really it's questionable even calling it a portable system. I guess it's portable, but it's certainly nothing you're going to fit in your pocket. Anyways, um, it just barely fit in this wooden case. I actually had to, uh, position it diagonally across like the box is like a, a picture, like a rectangle shape. Uh, I had to, whereas the game boy kind of, I could tuck it up, along the edge in the corner of the box. The links was too big to do that, so I, it would just barely fit in this case diagonally. If I laid the links across the rectangle on the diagonal, it would fit. So then I just uh, reattached those uh, scraps of wood to form uh, along the diagonal um, and leave a little bit of side on, or a little bit, a little bit of room on each side of, of the diagonal for the cartridges and all that, and uh, boom, I've got a links case now of course i have the problem where i done the wood burning on the front that said game boy so i think i put a sticker over that or something and redid say links <laughs> but i think i used a sharpie that time uh but it worked and um my uh i it just that's one of my regrets i wish i wish i still had that case and that'd be really cool to to kind of have but oh well it, it got thrown out somewhere along the way and i don't have any pictures of it or anything but um that's too bad one of those regrets that you you never know you're when you're growing up with this stuff that uh, how much you're gonna appreciate it later. But uh, oh well, what can you do? Um. Anyways, after Blue Lightning and Clax, unfortunately, I found that the Lynx was kind of suffering from a similar basic problem that the Atari seventy eight hundred had for me a few years earlier, and that is the the conspicuous lack of like a strong third-party software support. Um, so you, it's, you know, a few games here and there that are decent, but it's just, you see this potential there, but the games are kind of hit and miss in terms of their fun factor. Uh, it just wasn't really measuring up to the Game Boy in that respect. I mean, most, almost, there were very few games I, I got my hands on for the Game Boy that I didn't enjoy. Maybe I didn't love all of them, but like they were all pretty solid at least. Uh, with the links, yeah, it was it was okay, but um, it's like let's put it this way: the the fun factor of the games wasn't quite living up to the the wow factor of what they looked like and sounded like. So, uh, like a few other games I had, um, I remember getting Electro Cop, and that one, I, I don't know. I know it's an early game and, and all that, but I just couldn't get into it. It was just, I just found it really dull. Um, not my, not my type of thing. Uh, I guess, I, I guess some people like that game. I, I just, 
I tried to like it. I just found it kind of slow and dull, and I just didn't like it. It wasn't. It was didn't do it for me. I got a Xenophobe. I remember for Christmas one year. Um, this is a pretty good version of the game, actually. But unfortunately, I just don't like the game Xenophobe. I just, I don't know. Even on the arcade, um, I just don't think it's a very good game, in my opinion. I maybe some people like it. I don't know. It's kind of cool looking game. I like the graphic style and all that, but. Uh, so the fact that the Lynx has a, a pretty good version of the game didn't really matter because I don't really like the game. Uh, like I said, I, I remember getting that for a gift, so um, I wouldn't have sought it. I wouldn't have sought that game myself, but it was it was given to me. Uh, Ninja Gaiden. Um, this is actually again similar problem to Xenophobe. This is actually a pretty good version of the game. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot. You know, it. it kind of mimics the arcade game whereas like the nes has a version of ninja god m which is a completely different game from the arcade it doesn't even try to be the same game uh this one here tries to is kind of a port of the arcade game and it does a really good job but unfortunately again the arcade game is just isn't a very good game i uh it's as far as beat-em-ups go um it's just there are it's even then like i just didn't care for it very much uh, so that was, uh, kind of, you know, I, it's hard to call it a disappointment because the game is actually a, a good port, but I just, um, I'm not, a, if you're not a fan of the source material, then a good port doesn't really get you anywhere. Right. Um, hard driving. I remember thinking that game was super cool at the arcade, uh, with the, you know, the, the force feedback steering wheel and the, this really primitive 3d type graphics and all that. So I was really excited to try it out in the Lynx, you know, because it has the scaling capabilities and all that. And it was okay, but it's just, I don't know. The, the, I don't think the, I think it was maybe a little overambitious for the Lynx hardware because it, um, it's been years and years and years since I played it. But what I remember thinking at the time was that it was just too sluggish and slow. Like the, uh, the frame rate, uh, the frame rate was horrible. Like, uh, because the game was such a technically challenging game to to execute hardware wise uh the on the links it it played more like a slideshow than like a video game uh, it was really sluggish and and I found that distracting. I remember thinking it was okay, but just kind of a letdown um maybe a little overly ambitious uh to be putting uh on the links um yeah, and there was, uh, you know, several others, uh, like Road Blasters and uh, Golf and Gates of Zendikon. And, you know, a lot of these games, were they were decent, but I don't know. they um, None of them really had the wow factor for me in terms of gameplay. I mean, they looked good, but I never found them that fun to play. Um, you know, at least not as much as... as, as the typical Game Boy game for some reason. I still liked the idea of having the links. Um, you know, I, I didn't regret that I got it, but there was a point there where I, I kind of started regretting the fact that I sold my Game Boy. I kind of wished I would have kept it. Not that's not to say that I, you know, I wish, you know, I, I, I wish I could have sold the links to get the Game Boy back. It's not. I guess what I'm saying is I kind of wish I would have had both to get the best of both worlds. But, um, you know. I uh, I'd made the decision, and there was uh, 
there's nothing I could do about it. Um, Lynx was my portable gaming gaming system, and I didn't have a Game Boy anymore. So, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't long after that that you know all games and fun, you know how fun the games were. All all that aside, uh, I didn't have the Lynx for very long before I started to get the feeling that it was like cursed. Um, I remember there was this um, my one buddy, um, actually my best friend at the time. He's still still a really good friend of mine. Um, he was, we were hanging out one night and, um, and, uh, he had, you know, his parents were really strict and they wanted him home by a certain time. And, and he lost track of time and he, he showed up home like half an hour late or something like that. And so he was grounded. Um, so we, we would ride the same school bus home from school and then we'd, we'd get off the bus and part ways. He'd go up the street to his house and I'd walk across the street to my house. And he's like, well, I guess I'll... I'll see you, see you, you know, in a week when I'm, when I'm not grounded anymore. And like, so he was like just grounded to his room for a full week. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything outside of school, nothing. So, so I said to him, like, just trying to be a good friend. I said, Hey, um, you know, if you're looking for something to do in your bedroom, you know, do you want to borrow my, my links? Um, at least, you know, you could maybe while you're tucked away in your room, you'll have something to do. Um, and, uh, and maybe kill some time. He goes, yeah, that'd, that'd be awesome. Would you mind? I said, no, I'll, he's, I said, wait here, I'll go get it for you. So I ran in the house and I, um, uh, I grabbed my links and my games and my, uh, AC adapter I said, here you go. Um, just, uh, I'll just get it back from you. Um, next week when you're not grounded anymore, he's like, oh, thanks, man. He's, he's really thankful. He was, thank you so much. So this, this week goes by and it's time for me to, you know, I'm, I really wanted to get my links back. I mean, I uh, I wasn't going to let him for let him have it a, a day longer than we agreed. Um, and so he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll bring it back after school." So he he comes over and um, he hands it to me. And he's he's got this sob story. He's got this. He's like, um, you know, he he points to the 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 port on the links where the AC adapter plugs in, and the there's the little pin inside that port. Um, where the uh, the uh, adapter plugs in there, um, and the little pin inside was broken. So I, in other words, I, now I am no longer to attach, able to attach the uh, the AC adapter to the links because the little pin inside the port is broken. He was like, I was playing my links, and my and my, and my cousin came in the room, and he, and he ran and jumped on the bed, and and he's, he's given me this great big story, and I could tell he had rehearsed this story. Almost like he, like he knew he'd busted my links, um, and I think he was trying to spin the tale somehow so, so that it was somehow not his fault or something. Like that. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I mean, like, uh, I was pretty upset actually, but I mean, what you know, he obviously felt really bad about it, and at least the system still worked with batteries. So, um, the AC adapter was 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 out, but at least I could still still play it. Uh, as long as I had batteries. And, um, so I begrudgingly took it back and, uh, and, uh, I just said, I don't want to hear your story. It was pretty obvious to me, even at the time that he was just trying to spin a tail so that I wouldn't be too mad at him. Like somehow that makes it better. Like, uh, whatever. That's what, what kids do, right? When they, when they're quote unquote in trouble, they try to talk their way out of it. Uh, and you know, uh, deflect responsibility. 
who knows what actually happened to this day. I don't know what happened. You know what? I think I'm going to bring that up with him and see if he remembers what happened. I'm like, level with me, man. How did you break my links? Anyway, um, it still worked and I was able to play it on batteries. And, um, uh, a few months later, this is why, you know, I talk about the thing being cursed. There's this incident with the power adapter plug breaking off. And then a few months later, my dad, um, took uh took us on like a, a ski trip up north uh actually we had family that lives up there or we did at the time they don't live there anymore and uh we were gonna stay at their house this was several several hours up north stay at their house you know spend the days at the ski slopes and then you know come back to the house at night for for dinner and, and to sleep and all that and so on that trip i i thought well this is a good opportunity to catch up on you know playing some links games so i packed it up brought it with me Played some, uh, remember playing some Ninja Gaiden and some, you know, clacks and Blue Lightning on the drive on the way up. And um, when we got there, I, I, you know, I brought the links inside. I don't think I played it much there Well, once we got to, uh, you know, got to the house we were staying at. But um, for some reason, I didn't want to leave it in the car. So I took it and took all, you know, the, the, the handheld and, and all the stuff with it. And I, I tucked it up in this closet. Um, at my aunt and uncle's house, uh, somewhere where it would be safe. Cause uh, I had younger cousins at the time. I didn't really trust them. I didn't want them to, to get their hands on it and break it or spill something on it or something like that. So kind of tucked it up in this closet. And, um, a couple days later when we were packing up to leave to go home, at some point my brother had taken his jacket and rather than hang it up, like a normal person, he'd taken his jacket and just kind of tossed it up on the top shelf of this closet where my links was. And you can see what's going to happen here, right? So when it comes time to go, we're leaving. My brother walks up to this closet and he reaches up to the top shelf to grab his coat and he pulls his coat off the shelf. And my links was underneath his coat and it dragged my links off the shelf when he grabbed his coat. And the links plummeted about, you know, six, seven feet to the ground, the hardwood floor, smash. And uh, I put a great big uh, crack in the screen and um, I picked it up and tried to turn it on and the, the backlight would turn on, but there'd be no image. It would just be a white screen. So the thing was bricked. It was useless. It was busted. And that was the end of the link for me. I mean, uh, you know, I through no fault of my own, I guess. I mean, lend it to a friend. He busts off the power cord a couple months later. My brother drags off a shelf, smashes it on the floor. I, I don't really feel like I I did anything to deserve any of this happening, but uh whatever. My links was busted. And uh that's why I was out of the out of the handheld game uh out of the you know handheld gaming at that point because the Game Boy was sold, Links was smashed, and that was it. Um I remember being upset about it, but you know maybe not quite as upset as I would have been had it happened a few years earlier, because um, the way I remember it anyway, this was right around the time when I was just starting to kind of move away from, from video games. Uh, there, there were less of a focus in my life. I was getting other interests and all that. Um, I still played them. I mean, obviously I brought the links on that trip uh, and I was still interested, but um, the fact that video games were fading a little bit, maybe that, 
made it a little bit easier to swallow the fact that my uh, Lynx was busted. But anyway, that was it. I never, I never got another, I didn't replace it. I didn't have it fixed. I didn't go buy another Game Boy. I didn't go buy another Lynx. Uh, I didn't go get a Game Gear or anything like that. And that was it for handheld gaming for me. Um, and in fact, I, uh, I've never, I never had another original handheld, uh, uh, piece of hardware after that. Um, I did have other consoles, but uh, no other handhelds. I never got into the PSPs or, or, um, oh, actually, sorry, let me, let me correct that. I do, I did pick up a Game Boy Advance, uh, but not when it was current. <laughs> so, and actually, I still have that now, but, um, but I picked that up, uh, in the realm of retro gaming, not, uh, not back when it was current. Uh, so what about today? Uh, do I, what do I do with, if anything, what do I do with, um, handheld gaming today? Well, I, I do have a Game Boy. I did, uh, go on eBay several years ago and pick up a, uh, an original black and white, you know, the original model. Uh, and I, I've still got that. I'm looking at it right now. Um, it still works. I play it once in a while. Um, but uh, not terribly often. And I do have a small stack of games, which is nice. And um, I actually do have a Lynx as well. But I don't have the, I don't have the model that I had back then. But I, I have the, uh, the Lynx too. Uh, and uh, I picked that up on eBay as well. And when I when I got it, it it actually didn't even work. I was kind of ticked off. But rather than make too big of a deal. Um, with the seller, I, uh, I got him to give me some of my money back and then I said, I'll keep it. You give me a little bit of a refund and uh, I ended up fixing it. Um, I had to tinker with a little bit, but I got it working. Um, but for, for both of those, the, uh, the Game Boy and the Lynx, um, I, I, I don't play them very much because frankly, it's really tough. Those screens, um, even the color backlit one on the Lynx, it, it's so low contrast and um, it's hard to, those screens are tough to look at now uh, when you're, when you're used to everything having like a bright, sharp screen, like iPhones and, and tablets and, and laptops and uh, high definition TVs, like they have really high contrast, sharp images. You just get used to that. Even screens in, in cars and stuff like that, everything. So then to turn on one of these retro pieces of hardware and see these uh, these old screens, um, it's really the contrast. I keep saying that, but that's really the problem, like where you can't distinguish one tone from the next because it, it's just not much of a difference there. Uh, it's just not there on those old screens. Um, even the backlit ones and the color ones, it's just really tough to look at them now. So, I, I you know, I play these systems once in a while. In short bursts, but uh, it's it's tough to get into them. I, I do enjoy the game still, though, um, so I do play them uh, on via emulation, which um, you know kind of in a way makes sense because I if I'm traveling, you know, playing portable systems, you know, one of the best things about them is to play them when you're traveling, right? Well, nowadays when I'm traveling, I'm going to have my tablet with me, and on my tablet, I'm going to have emulators. And uh, I'm going to have a nice, comfortable uh, USB uh, controller to plug into this thing to use. So why wouldn't I play these Game Boy and Lynx games on a nice, big, bright screen where I can clearly see everything? 
and I have a nice comfortable controller that sits in my hand nicely, uh, a big image to look at. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense to, to use these portables anymore in their original, you know, the way we used them back then. Um, but they're, you know, it's still fun to think about and um, fun to pick them up every now and then for that, you know, that blast from the past feeling. Um, and uh, the emulation for both of these systems is, is pretty solid these days, so I don't feel like you're really missing out on anything. Uh, and you're only the only thing you're getting is a bigger and brighter screen. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting about the Lynx, though, uh, is there are a couple of the cartridges that I have for it. Um, I've probably got, um, you know, in terms of real copies of real cartridges for the Lynx, I think I've probably got about 12 to 15 of them right now. And um, two or three of them that I have are actually the original copies that I had back in the 80s and early 90s. And um, that is interesting to me because that's the only example of anything that I ever kept um, through, you know, all these years and, and still have. Like my, all our old Atari stuff, 2600, 7800 gone. No, I, I can't remember what, what we did with that. All the cartridges gone. NES gone. Genesis gone. PlayStation gone. Um, the Game Boy, everything to do with the Game Boy is gone. You know, of course, some of the stuff I've repurchased through the years, but in terms of the the original copies of the things that I had back then, um, th these Lynx cartridges are the only things that have survived in my uh, possession. Uh, like I said, the original system I had is gone because it was busted, but um, I, I, I hung on to the cartridges for some reason. They were tucked away in this drawer. Um, even all through the years, I went away to um, when I I moved two or three times. Somehow, I don't I don't even remember why I bothered carrying this stuff around with me. There's because there was a, a big stretch of time there where I didn't you know where I hadn't got into retro games yet. I didn't even really care, but for some reason, I just couldn't bring myself to get rid of it. And, uh, and I'm glad I kept them because now I've got um, just those are the only original things I still have. And um, so there's the the copy of uh, Blue Lightning a copy of Ninja Gaiden, and uh, I believe a copy of Clax. Those are, and I actually have, now I have doubles of all those because um, I got new copies of them when I uh, when I bought the links. They were in the lot. So anyways, it's nice to have those uh, blasts from the past. And uh, I think when I'm done here, I'm going to charge up some batteries and maybe play some links. But anyway, that's my um, that's my look at the my uh, um, handheld experiences here. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, I still have a few more in this kind of series that I'm doing here, where I'm walking through my personal history of uh, of games, um, you know, back from the old days. And I've already done the Atari and the NES, and now the handheld stuff. And so. Moving on, we're going to talk a little bit about, about Genesis. I think that era is going to be next. So, If you have any comments, questions, death threats, feel free to hit me up at pixeladvocate at outlook.com. That's pixeladvocate at outlook.com. I'm also on Twitter, at pixeladvocate, all one word. May we all appreciate what we have today. 
and in our fleeting spare moments, may we finally reflect upon our pixel-perfect past. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.